0: We're in Mark chapter 9 and verse 30. Before we read this, let me set this up and uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that God it is here for us to learn from you, to follow you. And Father, I pray that we would not ignore it, but God, we'd have receptive hearts to receive it and then to do it. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you'll remember two weeks ago, we were at the Mount of Transfiguration up in northern Israel. And Jesus revealed His nature more fully to the disciples. And only three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. And as, as He revealed it, as He was transfigured before them and they see more of His full nature, as they were going down from that place, Jesus told them, don't tell anybody about this. Uh, keep this to yourself until I've risen. And they still really don't know what he's talking about. He's already predicted his death twice to them. And they went up on that Mount of Transfiguration. Then they're coming down. That's when he had the teaching about if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And now we're, we're, we're headed down from the Mount of Transfiguration. We're going to be back in Capernaum today. And we're headed towards Jerusalem. From from the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is headed directly towards Jerusalem. So we are headed to the cross at this point in the Gospels. We're also going to see a shift in Jesus from teaching crowds and doing lots of miracles to teaching more the disciples, preparing them for his death. So verse 30 says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He is killed, after three days He will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask Him. I don't know about you, if you've ever been in a place where you've had the opportunity to learn from somebody, somebody that really knew what they were talking about, and you got to have those private almost tutoring sessions with them. I've had a couple of times like that in my life where I've gotten to be with men who I regard very highly, men of faith, and just being able to sit under their discipleship has been so rewarding to me. I remember, I'll never forget the first time I walked into Covenant Community Church, which is what we were before Calvary Chapel Old Town, and I, and I, uh, I met with Pastor Rod and I said, uh, uh, Pastor, I, I believe God's calling me into ministry. I think I think I should, I'm going to be a pastor. Um, and he said, "What? what now I know why pastors say this now. He said, okay, we'll see. <laughs> you know, you think when you're going to say, I'm going to be a pastor, everybody's going to like go, yay, you know, but that's not what it was. We'll see. And now I know why he said that. But he said, we'll see. And he said, tell you what, let's start meeting together once a week. We'll meet together and, and uh, we'll, We'll just say the scriptures together, and then, and then uh, we'll see where it goes from there. So I started meeting with him once a week, and, and just being able to be discipled by Pastor Rod. And, and that was such a rewarding time for me. And still to this day, being able to walk into Rod's office and say, hey, what do you think about this? How do you deal with this situation? And I've had many men in my life where God has put there where I've been able to talk to, talk to personally, and let them, let them speak into my life, and even sometimes course correct me, go, Dave, that was dumb. I don't know why you would even think that was a good idea. That was really dumb. You need to turn back this way. And and I've appreciated that and I've learned from it. And this is really the scenario that Jesus is doing. Now He's moved from teaching the crowds to just the disciples. And that's what He said. The text says He didn't want anyone to know where He was because He's teaching the disciples. But what He was teaching them, they didn't want to hear. The Son of Man. Now, Just so you understand that Daniel chapter 7, and we don't have it on the slides tonight, but you can turn there if you want, Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, just so you understand this term son of man, it says in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, it says, Daniel in his vision says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this term son of man, every time Jesus uses the term son of man to refer to himself, he's referring back to that prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 saying, I'm that guy, I'm the one. Just like when Jesus was on the cross and He said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When He says that, He was telling everybody, hey, go look at Psalm 22. Go look at Psalm 22. I'm the one. I'm the one that this prophecy fulfills. And there are plenty of prophecies in the Old Testament about Messiah's death, about His suffering, about Him being the hand of the Lord the arm of the Lord that's been extended for, our, for, for God's people, for our salvation. But somehow the Jews never put this idea together that the Son of Man, this Messiah from Daniel 7, is going to suffer and be murdered. They just never got this idea. They never put it together. And it's completely outside of their thinking. Let me give you an illustration of what this would be like. And maybe this isn't as strong. But it'd be like saying that in 10 years' time, America won't exist anymore. It's just if you and I hear that, we're just going to be like, yeah, right. It's not even possible. It's not even our thinking. You know, the Soviet Union, that fell overnight. The Soviet Union, when I went to bed one night, the Soviet Union was there. Of course, I was a child in the 80s there. Uh, and, of course, those of you guys that <laughs> weren't alive yet, it wasn't as, it's not as big of a deal communism, but I'll, I'll never forget in my childhood, people had bunkers in their backyard. People were worried about nuclear warfare with the Soviet Union. It was a big deal. The Russians were bad guys. We had awesome movies like Red Dawn that showed how bad these guys were. They always wanted to attack us. Every movie from the 80's was always fighting the Russians. Um, and they were a clear enemy. But one morning I wake up and the Soviet Union is gone. It's fallen. Communism has fallen. And we can't even imagine sometimes those life. And just like that, if, if we heard today that the America, the United States wouldn't exist, we just, I'm not going to accept that. I don't believe that. It's not possible. Yet here Jesus is saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. First of all, that He's going to be put into the hands of men. Wait, no, no, no. The Son of Man is supposed to be delivering us. Not Him being delivered to them. And then they'll kill Him. And when He is killed after three days, He will rise. Now you and I look back from the New Testament, look backwards, and we go, okay, yeah, it makes sense. But for them, they didn't understand it, and that's what the Scriptures say. They didn't understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask Him. They were afraid. And here's what I want to challenge you with. If there's something in Scripture that you don't understand or even something that you're fearful of understanding because you're afraid of the implications it's going to have on your life. Maybe you're going to have to change the way you live. Maybe you're going to have to resubmit something to God. Maybe you're going to have to come to terms with something you've done is sinful or against God. So you're afraid to ask. I know in my life, personally, when I've sinned, I'm I'm kind of afraid to even confess it to the Lord because I feel shame in my sin. I, 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 if I lost my temper, I feel ashamed. And, and in my prayer time, I, I, I don't want to say, Lord, forgive me for losing my temper. I recognize that was wrong. I'm, I'm ashamed. I'm fearful sometimes. And, of course, we don't need to be, but I think we recognize what sin is. And so I want to encourage you, if there's something you don't understand, don't be afraid to ask the lord to reveal it to you to give you understanding and this is going to throw flow through to the rest of this chapter in mark 9 because we're going to see that jesus is going to confront some of their ideas the things that they're afraid to talk to about let's go to verse 33 chapter 9 verse 33 and they came to capernaum and when when he was in the house he asked them what were you discussing on the on the way Man, I'll tell you right now, the kingdom of God is nothing like the kingdom of men. And as Jesus is starting to reveal the kingdom of God to to the disciples and starting to help them understand what the kingdom of God is going to look like, it is so opposite of the kingdom of men. Now, status in Jewish culture was important. Status in our culture is important today. Um, it, it is, and, and a lot of times we fall into this trap of keeping up with the Joneses sort of idea, keeping up with our neighbors or our friends and having what they have and keeping up culture-wise. But for the Jews, having a high status, having a high rank, being the high priest, having a high rank in the temple, being the head of, the, the head of a synagogue, these were huge things to look forward to because in their thinking... You get to sit in a higher rank in the kingdom, the Messianic kingdom. You're going to have a better place before God. The more authority you have here over men, the more authority you're going to have in God's kingdom. And so in, in first century Palestine, we saw prior to, actually prior to the first century, a lot of fighting and war happening over the control of the Jewish religion and the temple and the high priest and over the control of the territory. There was lots of fighting going on prior to Jesus. And so the disciples here are saying, well, gee, I, w- I wonder who's going to be the greatest. And I like how they're afraid to. They, they somehow already know that what they're arguing about, it's not a good thing to bring up to Jesus. You know, it's like we're arguing about who's going to be the greatest, you know. And, and of course, you and I kind of like laugh at it because we know the New Testament perspective on this. But, but at the same time, we all want to be of high status, We all desire to be somewhat better than someone else. It's just kind of part of the fallen nature. We want to look at ourselves better. In fact, most of the time when we gossip or slander somebody or or when we put others down, it's a way to lift ourselves up or or try to achieve in the workplace a, a higher position. And sometimes we go after these positions not in a way that is godly but in a way that is ungodly. We go in a way that the world goes after these positions, undermining other people. And I'll tell you right now, that will not work in the kingdom of God. And Jesus sets the example Himself, and we know that the cross is coming. But He says this, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. See, the biblical model of leadership is servant leadership. That's what I know in this church is required of our pastors. And I've had a great model before me. I already said about Pastor Rod. I'll tell you, uh, Pastor Rod always shows me up. I'm like going trying to serve and then, then we'll be at Wednesday night dinner and Pastor Rod's over there s- scrubbing dishes or taking out trash. And I go, okay, i got to go do more trash. And, you know, I'm like, okay. I'm trying to catch up. No, Rod, you go sit down so I can do this, please. You know, I want to be a better leader. I want to be a better servant. And I'll tell you right now, if you want to be a leader in the kingdom of God, become a servant. If you want to have a high rank in the kingdom of God, you take the lowest rank right now. You become the lowest. You lay down yourself. Remember, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he's got to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You've got to put yourself aside and follow Jesus. If anyone wants to be first, He's got to become the last. And that's what's so different about the kingdom. It's so different to our society. We don't race to be in front. We race to help others and serve. And guys, you know what? I'll tell you right now, this is not a good model for getting ahead in the world. This is is the absolute worst model for getting ahead, especially in competitions. This is the worst model. This is the model that will put you behind because you're there serving and helping others along the way. But this is the model that reflects Christ the most. And if you want to be great in the kingdom, you're going to reflect the master, Jesus Christ. Notice what Jesus does. He takes a child and he puts him in the midst of them. Now, I wonder if this is like Peter's kid. It might be. We, we, We know that he used Peter's house for his home base in Capernaum. So it very well could be Peter's child that he took aside. I don't know. But anyway, he takes this child into his arms and he says, Whoever receives one such a child in my name receives me. Well, what's the big deal about a child? Well, I'll tell you right now, there's an Aramaic, which Jesus would have been speaking with his disciples. The word doulos, which in Greek means servant, and the word child in Greek, pideon, which we have in our New Testament. In Aramaic, they're the same word. There's no difference between slave or servant and child. And in first century Palestine, in, in Jesus' time, in Jesus' day, children were pretty much not, they weren't human beings. They were property. They, it just, it didn't matter, which, which the New Testament completely changes. The New Testament puts value on children. I don't know if you saw what happened in Colorado recently about the woman whose baby was taken from her, uh, and, and they, instead of ruling that this was murder, They said uh, this woman, they aborted this lady, lured her over to her house, aborted the woman's baby in the eighth month to try to steal the baby. Baby died, woman got away. And guess what the Colorado court decided? Did you guys hear this in the news? The Colorado court decided that this was property damage. It was property damage. You know why they decided that? Well, because if we say it, it was if it was murder, then that means that the fetus, the baby, is an actual human being, and then we can't go do what we want with abortion. We're moving backwards in our culture. See, it's the New Testament that sets people free. The New Testament that puts value on life. Jesus' teachings. And he's saying here that this child, if you receive this child in my name, you receive me. On when I read this, I say, okay, I'm going I'm to go teach children. The children are become important to me. I've got to make sure I raise up children in the faith. I've got to put value on children, especially in God's kingdom. By the way, verses like these should make us want to be a part of children's ministry, make us be a part of, uh, of making sure that we do our best to raise our children and show them the way in which they should go. Teach them the scriptures. So if anyone receives this child and and they not only receive me, but they receive the one who sent me. That by by receiving this child and recognizing this child as special, as created by God, as important, I'm doing so, I'm receiving God Himself. And this is important to us. Jesus just totally flipped this whole idea of being, having authority. He's not saying it's not about you wearing the high priest's clothes. It's about you being like a child, receiving a child, making that child important. You know, it's the same thing for ministry, pastoral ministry, serving in the church, being a deacon, deaconess, an elder. It's got to start with servanthood. Don't look at yourself as, oh, man, I've, I've become an elder. I've made it. Or I should be an elder because I've, I look what I've done in the, the public world. We've had elders before who who, um, or they haven't been elders, but they've wanted to be elders, and they've told us about how great their resume is in the public world and how they led, uh, they were at the top of their industry, captain of their industry, and, and why they deserve to be an elder. And as soon as they say that, the pastors go, nope. <laughs> nope. That's great. I'm really glad that you were successful. That's good. But that doesn't measure success in God's kingdom. So let me encourage you, if you're going to follow after Jesus, start to learn to become the servant of all. He goes on in verse 38. Now, we might want to say, like, how does 38, how does this next part, how does John speaking refer back to 37? I think it's more of a catchphrase sort of thing. John hears Jesus say, whoever receives, and then he, he starts out with, uh, with what he wants to ask. So verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So John, and it's interesting, Mark's Gospel, uh, after the transfiguration, you'll see in the Gospels, three people that come up often of screwing up are James, John, and Peter, the guys who saw the transfiguration happen. You know, sometimes we think like when God does something powerful through us or before us, we're like, okay, I'm in. (laughs) I'm solid now. But I'll tell you right now, you are going to screw up right after. Because as soon as you start thinking like, okay, I got this dialed in, you're going to fall and go, okay, I don't have this dialed in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and John does this. John's like, don't worry, Jesus. We got this covered. We saw this guy trying to cast out a demon, or casting out demons. It doesn't say trying. It says casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him. We got, we got this covered. And Jesus, Jesus gives this very mild rebuke. Do not stop him. For whoever does the mighty work in my name will we'll be able to soon after we'll, we'll, uh, sorry uh, we'll be able soon afterward to speak evil of me they they can't speak evil of me if they've done this this work in my name now what does that mean for churches you know sometimes people get this idea where like okay calvary chapel that's the best if you're not calvary chapel you're just a lesser church well we've only been calvary chapel for like i think a year and a half maybe uh, yeah it's been about a year and a half we've been in calvary chapel before that, we were a church named Covenant Community Church, and so we affiliated with Calvary Chapel, and, and when we affiliated, it was amazing. Man, the, the roof split open, <laughs> glitter fell down. No, none of that happened. You know what happened? We kept teaching the Word. That, that's, that's all that happened. We, we just changed our name because we wanted to be affiliated with with Calvary Chapel, we were a, we were a lone church. We we didn't we wanted to have those resources to be part of the pastoral conferences and all those things. Nothing better happened. We were a church, an evangelical church, a Christian church. Prior, just like Calvary Chapel is a Christian church, just like Eastside is a Christian church, and and we don't want to start talking bad about the church down the street. And I've heard Christians do this. You know, you'll have a church. Uh, Eastside when they first bought that building over here in Anaheim I started getting their, uh, their newsletter mailing list and, and you know it's like bounce houses and I'm like honey I want to go to Eastside this Sunday they got bounce houses you know, but <laughs> I think they're for the kids though so that's the, that's the problem but we don't want to talk bad about other ministries we want to recognize God's doing with that ministry what he's going to do And he's going to do with our ministry what he's going to do. And you know what? When he comes, when he returns, we're going to be praising God with those churches, those fellowships. And they'll be praising God with us and we're going to be one big church. It's going to be awesome. So we don't want to start talking bad about other ministries. Now, we want to be aware and we want to make sure that, hey, because we'll see later in, in the book of Acts... We see that some people are casting out demons uh, in, in Paul's name, and they've got this wrong, and, and, and we'll see, th- see that. So we want to be aware of false teachers, but Jesus says, don't stop or talk down or, or, or try to hinder this work. And what he's doing is he's opening up the disciples' idea of what the kingdom of God is. See, they have this very myopic view, very narrow, tunnel vision view. Us 12, we are the kingdom this is awesome. No, it's much bigger than th- those 12. In fact, there's going to be people that are doing powerful things in the name of Jesus Christ who you've never even met because they're part of my kingdom. And so, so Jesus opens this up, their, their, their whole world up to them, and tells them that, you know what? Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no, long, by no means lose his reward. If they're serving you because you belong to Christ and they're serving others because they belong to Christ, they're going to receive that reward just like you're going to receive that reward for following Christ. Verse 42, this is where it gets tough tonight. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, when we get from verse 40 to verse 42, we kind of go, wait a minute. Jesus is talking about reward, and he's talking about not hindering this person. And now he jumps over to this. And so we'll get, to, we'll get to how this all concludes the teaching with the disciples. But the first thing he says is, if anyone causes one of these little ones, one of these little children to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Let me just pause there on 42 and talk about it for a minute. Millstone, this word is not uh, like you're in your kitchen with like a small mortar and pestle and just like, you know, doing this sort of thing. It's like, oh, a millstone, that's not a big deal. You know, I'm good. No, this is like the millstone that a donkey was tied to is a big stone, big stone. And the donkey was tied to it and it would go around in circles and it would, it would grind down the grain. This is a big stone. This isn't a stone that I could just lift up. This is a huge stone. And Jesus gives this cursing for anyone who causes a little one who believes in him to sin. And little one, by the way, I think this can refer to the disciples, to anyone young in the Lord. Any, any one of Jesus' children, I think this refers to as much as a little child... And, and the reason why he says mil, it, it would be better for them to put this millstone around the neck and throw it into the sea. In Jesus' day, the pagans would often mur, uh, kill people or put them to death. If they were really bad people, the pagans would, would do this sort of death. They would tie a millstone around them and cast them into the sea. And we go like, okay so what's the big deal about that? Crucifixion seems way worse, right? Well, the whole idea of this was that If someone was drowned in the sea, they had no grave. And then they're forced to wander around aimlessly throughout the earth. And they never get to rest. They never get to settle. And the Jews were like, hey, this is a pagan type of death. And pagans do this sort of thing. And for the Jew, they believed in a resurrection. And they believed the bones of the person was really important. So they would save the bones for the resurrection day. And if there were no bones to save and the person died at sea... They're lost. That's a bummer. Again, God's a much bigger God than they thought. He can put back together everything. (laughs) But Jesus is saying that anyone who causes someone to sin, anyone who leads someone towards sin, it'd be better for you to die this terrible way, this cursed death, than for you to do this, to face the judgment. Man, think about all the things in our culture That lead our young people. Lead believers into sin. Just think for a moment about all these things. Terrible. And what a judgment is waiting for them. He goes on to talk about sin here in verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled. Than with two hands to go to hell. To the unquenchable fire. The salt loses, has lost its saltiness. How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is a hard teaching of Jesus right here. And by the way, I want to tell you right now, Jesus is not promoting you making yourself, maiming yourself. Okay, that's not what this teaching is promoting. What Jesus is doing is he's giving you a value proposition. And Jews always thought that sin was always related to a body part. So if you sin in some way, like if you stole, your hand caused you to steal. Okay? And we see this in the Beatitudes when Jesus talks about the Beatitudes. And he says, um, you have heard it said that if a man commits adultery with a woman and so on. But I tell you the truth that if if a man lusts after a woman in his heart, then he's committed adultery. See, Jesus took that to the new level and said sin starts in the heart. It doesn't start with the hand. But he's explaining it to the disciples in a way that they can understand and he's telling them here that sin and judgment, it's way better to lose things and make those decisions to lose things than to pursue after sin. Sin is so enticing. And by the way, if sin wasn't enticing, we wouldn't want to do it. I mean, can you imagine if, like, if, if sin wasn't enticing, it would be so easy to stay away from. I, there's a couple things in my life that I hate. One of them is tamale casserole if you're laughing, you know what I'm talking about. My mom would make tamale casserole. I thought tamales was tamale casserole. That's not true. Tamale casserole is, okay, I'm going to say it this way. It's white people food. What it is, is it's, it's trying to take something really good and make it really terrible in a casserole form. And and my mom would make tamale casserole, and I hated eating tamale casserole. It was always terrible. Now, if you make a good tamale casserole, I'm sure it's really good. I don't want to offend you. I just, I was, I was marred by tamale casserole, casserole, that and peas and onions. Uh, so anyway, but I never liked tamale casserole. And if sin was like tamale casserole, I would never partake in it. I would just be like, <laughs> that's no temptation. It's tamale casserole. You know that's an easy one. I'm not going to go after that. But sin's not like tamale casserole. Sin is like (laughs) tri-tip, or 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 ribs, or (laughs) no. I'm not saying it's a sin to eat these things. Well, it could be, depending on how much you eat. But anyway, (laughs) but but the whole point is, is sin is so good-looking, and it looks fun. And it looks like it's going to be so pleasurable and so fulfilling and so satisfying. If we only go after this, it's going to meet our needs. And it never does. Sin only takes us farther away from God and His kingdom. Sin sin mars us and destroys us. It destroys our relationships. It causes our marriages to fail. It causes us to develop unhealthy habits. It cooks our brains, some sin. It completely mars us. And Jesus is telling us here that, listen, if you've got a sin issue, it is better to get rid of that sin issue completely. I mean, it's gonna, it might be a hard decision. Now, I don't want you to go around home tonight and cut off a hand. That would be really bad, and it would be bad for the news story, especially for me. Uh, <laughs> I'll probably never preach again, so please don't do that. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that you may have to make some hard decisions to get rid of sin. It may be cutting a certain person off. For for you young people who are dating, it may be getting rid of a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It may be saying, you know what? I am sinning when I'm with you. I'm doing things that are wrong and we're done. I got to stop. It may be making a job change. You may be having a job or in your job be doing things that you know is not godly and you've got to make a decision to cut it off. It may be, for some of you men, it may be not going on the internet unless your wife is present in the room. Or or letting your wife have passwords so that she, she logs you in. It may be some tough decisions. Maybe some really tough decisions. For some of you women, it may be getting off Facebook because you're tempted to flirt with people through social media. It may be cutting things out of your life that cause you to sin. It may be cutting off those TV shows or those movies that you like to watch or that series because you recognize that this is only leading me towards sin. And you know what? I'll tell you right now. I'd rather go to heaven. I'd rather be with the Lord for eternity than be on my computer. I'd rather be with the Lord for eternity than watch Desperate Housewives. Oh, that's not even a show anymore. I don't know. Some some stupid TV show. I, I'd rather be with the Lord than have this sin that is so fleeting that doesn't even bring about the righteousness of God, that doesn't bring about the good life. It only brings about problems within my marriage, within my relationships. It only hurts me. So it's better for us to cut off sin. You might have to have some accountability in your life. You might have to go to some people and say, hey, you know what? I need a brother who can hold me accountable in this area of my life. Or, or you may need to go to your, your husband or your wife and say, I need accountability with this. You know, it's interesting because husbands and wives are always afraid to tell each other about sin uh, because we know how the other is going to react, right? So it causes us to lie. But we don't realize what a gift marriage is. Marriage is about someone who's always there to hold you accountable and to lift you up and to help steer you the right direction. Husbands and wives, let me challenge you for a minute. Do you have such a relationship with each other that you can confess sin to each other? And that that you'll be able to hear your spouse confess sin and be able to help them work through that sin in a godly manner, take, take them through the scriptures, work with them, hold them accountable, love them? Because for some reason when we get married, we have this idea that our spouse is perfect. I don't think we do. But, but we think that our spouse thinks we're perfect. And we think that if we screw up at all, oh my goodness, I can't say anything. You know? And we live under this thing versus saying, hey man, God has given me somebody. A mirror for me to look into. Someone to hold me accountable. Someone to spur me on towards faith and good works for my life. That is what marriage, a big part of marriage is. And by the way, it doesn't mean we tolerate sin. It doesn't mean we tolerate certain things. We don't go, oh, it's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. But it means that we love our spouse and we hold them accountable and we help them along in their faith. So I want to encourage you right now, if, if you're married, start to develop that relationship if you haven't already. You've got to be able to be transparent with your spouse. If you can't be transparent with your spouse, you're not going to be transparent with anybody because they live with you. So, <clears throat> all right. Then he goes on to say, <laughs> where the worm does not die, oh, sorry, better, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. Listen, with their, with, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, now, what does that mean? A lot of people today have tried to talk about, um, they don't like the idea of hell. In fact, the, the Mormons have tried to get rid of the idea of hell. Hell is, in, in the Seventh-day Adventist church, hell is only for those who have turned away from the Mormon church. But I'll tell you right now, if you've turned away from the Mormon church and turned towards Jesus Christ, you've only got heaven waiting for you. I'm telling you right now. The Jeho- Jehovah's Witnesses have tried to turn away from the idea of Hell. And now, even in the Christian church, many are adopting an annihilationism. That, oh, well, when Jesus talks about the second death, that fiery death, when he talks about hell, he's really just talking about the end of everything. You're just done. Like, you just cease to exist. But right here in this passage, when Jesus talks about hell, he's talking about an eternal torment. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Where this torment will continue on forever where this decay this rot this fire continues on that's what hell is hell will be an eternal hell it will go on now i know we don't like the idea of hell and i'll tell you right now god doesn't like the idea of hell either that's why he sent jesus christ you got to understand that god doesn't like the idea of you and i going to hell that's why he provided a way that you and I could be raised from the dead through Jesus Christ. That we could be given his righteousness so that we could stand before him and not have to be judged. The question is, do you want to stand in the judgment on your own? Do you want to stand before God and say, okay, I got this handled. I'll go to hell for myself. Or do you want to take that wonderful gift that Jesus gave us on the cross so we don't have to go to hell? Last, two ver- last couple verses here. For everyone will be salted with fire. Now, if you have an NKJV or a KJV Bible, it adds uh, a little passage here in verse 45, and I'll, I'll explain what it adds. Um, for every, everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. That's what the NKJV, New King James Version says, um, and the King James Version, every sac- it adds, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. And the reason why we don't have it in the ESV or the NIV or some of the newer translations is because that, that last part is not in the earliest manuscripts. The earliest manuscripts we've found don't have that last part. And, and so what, what they attribute that to is the scribes trying to make sense, trying to help the reader understand what Jesus is talking about here. Um, it's not a biblical error. And by the way, when you see things like this in Scripture, I just want to encourage you with this. Our, our Bible, we can trust 99.9% accuracy as far as what the original writer meant and intended. There are parts where some, a scribe may add in a little part. And, and that's what the New King James and the, the uh, King James were taking off much later manuscripts. Since, since those were originally written uh, or, or made, those translations were made, we have much earlier manuscripts now. And so we go back to those earliest ones. And But what, what the important part is, is they don't change any major doctrine or teaching or the deity of Christ or the resurrection. They don't have any bearing on that, okay? What the scribe was helping, trying to help you understand is, for everyone will be salted with fire. We read that and go, okay, what does that mean? But when you have the next part about every sacrifice, you get a whole new meaning. And that's what the scribe tried to help people understand why they wrote that note in there. In Leviticus, any sacrifice that was brought before the altar had to be salted. That's When, we, when you read the Levitical law, if you're going to be a sacrifice, if, if you're going to bring a sacrifice to God, you better season it. By the way, God likes barbecue. I just want you guys to know that. Barbecue is a godly thing. <laughs> so Anyway, <laughs> you were to, supposed to bring this sacrifice with salt, and you weren't supposed to not bring it with salt. If you brought it without salt, you were doing wrong. That was sinful to do it. And so they were to salt the sacrifice. And so what Jesus is saying here is everyone will be salted. Each one of you that follow me, you're going to be a sacrifice. This ties back to the last chapter. Anyone who comes after me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Romans 12 chapter 1 chapter 12 verse 1 um uh uh, therefore, brothers, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Um, so we're supposed to be sacrifices on that altar. And so Jesus is telling us, listen, if you're following me, you're going to go through trials. You're going to be under, under fire. You're going to deal with hardships. And you're going and, and to be salted. And verse 50, then he changes it and says, salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. And this ties right in with Matthew (laughs) 5.13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Remember, Jesus is tying this in with John saying, hey, we tried to stop him. And he's tying this in with who is the greatest that, th- these are the questions asked in this little teaching: Who's going to be the greatest among us, and who who's allowed to do miracles and who's not? And Jesus says, first of all, you better be like salt. You better be willing to season and preserve everything, because if you lose that saltiness, you're no good for anything. I think one way we can really apply this passage to our lives is: Are we apathetic? Do, are we just apathetic Christians? Do we come and hear the word but don't do anything? Are we like James says, listeners but not doers? Or do we have saltiness? Do we take the word and we go not only apply it to our lives, but we take it out into the world? That's the challenge here. This is the challenge for the disciples. They're getting all excited about who's going to be the greatest. How are you guys being salt? If it loses its saltiness, it's worthless. Have salt in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. There's the tie in with, hey, we tried to stop him. No, no, no. Be at peace with one another. Strive, that's part of your saltiness, do you know that? That you guys can come together, the church can come together as a fellowship, that we can love on one another, that we don't take offense at everything, that we're willing to cover over a multitude of wrongs. That's part of our saltiness. Not like the world does it. Holding grudges. Not trying to be on top of putting people down. We're salty. We're servants. We're salty servants. Okay, you can use that if you want. I, I, but, you know, make sure you say, yeah, I heard a pastor one time say salty servants. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, I one time tried to coin a term, and it didn't go very far. I tried to, uh, I tried to coin a term for the, how do you refer to the early 2000s? You know, like do you go 05, 06? But how do you know you're not talking about 1905? So I said, "Oh, here's a cool term to use: the early Os." It didn't go anywhere, but salty servants might. Okay, so listen. Let me encourage you to be a salty servant—one who preserves, one who who seasons. This world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and pray, Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for this time in Your Word, and and God, um, forgive me for being long winded. And Lord Jesus, we we thank you that Your Word teaches us what it means to be a part of Your Kingdom. God, that we've got to be servants. Lord, I pray that we would be good servants, good stewards in this kingdom. Lord, God, that You would use us to season this world with Your gospel. Lord, that we wouldn't just keep it in here in this room, but God, we would take it out, sharing your goodness with everybody. We want to glorify you, the one who saved us from hell. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.